0: Good morning, crowd, family. I'm glad you can join us today. Grace, peace, and love to you. Listen, before we get into the text, I want to give a shout-out to Raul Navarro out there in Visalia, and also to Richard and Maria Acuna out there in Escalon. God bless you and love you. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Titus chapter 3. That's Titus chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Titus uh, 3, verses 12 through 15 is today's text. Uh, we're now in part 9. In fact, it's the last part of our series, Doctrine, And devotion. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a review from all that we have studied in this short but amazing, powerful letter Paul wrote to Titus. And what I love about this letter is it offers much that is needed in the church today. Now, so I want you to follow me here in chapter one. In chapter one, we know that Paul left Crete to move on to preach in other cities, but because uh, there was so much work to be done in Crete, Paul left Titus behind. Now, there in chapter 1, we saw that Paul had commissioned Titus to do two things, two things. The first thing was to set in order or straighten out what was left unfinished. Now, remember, Paul was concerned about the lack of leadership structure in the local churches. The second thing was to appoint elders in every city, to appoint elders in every city. Crete had about 100 different cities, which shows how the gospel had spread. So what Paul does, Paul gives Titus a list of specific character uh, qualifications for leaders in the church. And Paul then tells Titus to beware of false teachers. And these teachers were rebellious. They were empty talkers, deceivers, part of the circumcision group in that they were insisting that people follow all the Old Testament rules and regulations. And Paul tells Titus these false teachers... Uh, must be silenced. He says they are ruining whole households, in other words, house churches, by teaching things they ought not to teach. And Paul says, Titus, you are to rebuke them sharply. Paul then points out their depraved culture, their defiled conscience, and that they claim to know God by their profession, but by their actions, in other words, in their practice, they deny him. In chapter 2, in chapter 2, Paul writes how healthy doctrine affects our lives. And that sound doctrine isn't just about hard-to-understand theological ideas. It's about life. It's about how to live. Good teaching. Say good teaching. Good teaching affects our lives. It changes how we behave. Our beliefs should should affect our behavior. And Paul begins by addressing five different groups. He addresses, first and foremost, the older men in faith, the older women in faith, the younger women in faith, the younger men in faith, and then he addresses the slaves about their specific duties as Christians in relation to their masters. And this has application for employer and employee relationship. In the remainder of the verses in chapter 2, Paul then shows Titus what living in response to God's grace looks like. And that it's God's grace, say God's grace, it's God's grace that brings salvation. And that His grace not only saves us, but it also continues working in us. He not only redeemed us, but He reforms us. It continues to have an impact and influence in and upon our lives. It teaches us and it trains us, listen now, what not to do and what to do. It teaches us and trains us, uh, listen, to be right toward ourselves, toward others, and toward God. It teaches us and trains us how to live in this present age. And then Paul points out that the gospel of grace refocuses our sight. We shouldn't just live for him, but we should also look for him because he's coming back. Look at verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? Paul then, in verse 15, tells Titus, These then, he says, are the things you should teach, referring to the um, doctrinal truths, uh, sound doctrine. And he says, Encourage and rebuke with all authority, Do not let anyone despise you. In other words, he's telling Titus, preach the word. Preach the word. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Preach sound doctrine. And here now, in chapter 3, Paul opens the chapter by focusing on two things, okay? The first one was to obey the government. To obey the government. Because to obey the government is to obey God who put that government in place, All government, say that, say that. All government is set up, in other words, established by God. Therefore, we must submit to its authority. Unless, unless it goes against the nature and character of God and His word. The second thing was to love your neighbor. Remember that? To love your neighbor. Paul goes from our relationship to the government and turns to our relationship to everybody in the community. And he says this, Be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. And you see, the result of being obedient to the government and loving your neighbor is that you will give Christianity credibility. And they will begin to worship and begin to glorify God because of the good works they see going on and coming out of your life. And then in verse 3, Paul begins by giving a list of characteristics Of what we used to be. And what he's doing, he's pointing out our rebellion prior to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says this, "'At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another.'" And so after giving us a list of what we used to be, he he turns our attention to what we are, and that's in verses 4 through 7. And in verse 8, he says this. This is a trustworthy saying, referring back to what he said in verses 4 through 7. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These are excellent, he says, and profitable for everyone now in contrast to that which is profitable paul now points out to that which is unprofitable and that we as christians that there are some things that we need to avoid and that's what we studied in last sunday's message it was about the divisive person and Paul says, listen now, to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Why? Why? Because, he says this, these are unprofitable and useless. And Paul then tells Titus to warn the divisive person, right? To warn the divisive person to exercise church discipline if necessary because there's a process in that. And Titus is commanded to give the divisive person a first and second warning, a first and second admonition. Now, if the divisive person fails to respond to these two warnings, then you are to recognize the divisive person's character and the danger of associating with him. And look at the end of verse 10. Paul writes, after that, after what? After not responding to the second warnings or second admonitions, After that, Paul says, listen what he says, have nothing to do with him. And then Paul tells Titus why he needs to reject the divisive person. Look at verse 11. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So this now brings us to today's text, and the title of my message today is Last But Not Least. Everyone say that, Last But Not Least. Now, now, some people will just skip the last portion of, of Titus because it doesn't seem interesting to them. You know, it's just Paul's last remarks. And I want to tell you, friends, there's more here in this text than you think. It's last but not least. And by the way, friends, I want to remind you what 2 Timothy, what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, where Paul writes, All Scripture... Okay? Not, not some, but all Scripture. That includes verses 12 through 15, or, or 13 through 15 of the text. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So verses 12 to 15 is part of that. Amen? So as Paul comes to the end of his letter to Titus, it's devoted mostly to personal matters. And what Paul does, Paul indicates his plans for the future activities of Titus and the future of the Cretan churches. So if you're with me, say amen. Two points from our text, and if you're ready, if you're ready say yes. Point number one is this. Follow me now. Point number one is the identification. Write that down, the identification. The identification. Now, in, in his parting words, Paul made reference to many within the church, and what he does, he mentions. First subpoint. First subpoint. He mentions the faithful. Write that down. The faithful. That's the first subpoint. The faithful. Now, now, before we look at the text, though Titus's name is not mentioned in this list of Paul's faithful friends, ministry, tree, ministry, ministry team members, excuse me, or partners, we know that Titus is included in this list because Paul wrote this letter to Titus, right? Now we already know who Titus is, and I mean we should. We've been in this series for nine weeks now, right? Nine weeks. So we know that Titus was Paul's faithful delegate sent to Crete to set in order, to straighten out what was left unfinished, and to appoint elders in every city. And the fact that we know that Titus was a Gentile and that he was probably in his early 30s, and he passed off the scriptures or the pages of scriptures in 2 Timothy 4 10, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 when he was being sent to Dalmatia. One historian said that after Titus left Dalmatia, he went back to Crete, uh, where he died at the age of 94, the city of Heraklion. He was a solid, faithful servant of God. Titus was a solid, faithful servant of God. And Paul loved him like his own son and completely trusted Titus. That being said, let's see the the other faithful friends, ministry ministry team members, and partners who co-labored with Paul. So let's go to verse twelve, verse twelve, verse twelve. A. Paul writes, "As soon as I send Artemis, say say Artemis, Artemis." And this is the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. And from his name, we can guess or gather that he was a Gentile. Now, 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 from the fact that Paul considered him a worthy replacement. For Titus, we can guess that he was competent, he was knowledgeable, faithful, mature, a faithful, mature servant of God, that he was a faithful minister of the gospel. In fact, this guy, this guy, Artemis, was willing to travel to Crete in effort to, listen now, continue leading the churches planted there. Now, what's significant is that Paul had a relatively unknown yet qualified man at his disposal. In fact, I think there were many more men like this that are not mentioned in Scripture. Look at verse 12b. Verse 12b. He says, Or Tychicus to you. Artemis, or Tychicus to you. So Tychicus was another faithful friend and ministry team member, a partner of Paul. And he was a Gentile believer, a native of Asia, which is modern day Western Turkey. And he had traveled with Paul along with some other men at the close of Paul's third ministry. Missionary, she's a missionary journey, and that's in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, Acts 20, verse 4. And later he was with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. Paul sent the letters to the Ephesian and Colossian churches with Tychicus, who told those churches about Paul's circumstances, and you'll find that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 22, Ephesians 6, 21 through 22, in Colossians chapter 4, Colossians 4, verses 7 through 9, verses 7 through 9. Later, Paul sent uh, Tychicus to Ephesus to relieve Timothy so that perhaps Timothy uh, could join Paul in Rome before his execution, and that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. 2 Timothy 4, verse 12. In Colossians, back to Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, Colossians 4, verse 7, Paul calls Tychicus... This is what he calls him. Our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord. I'm going to read that again. Our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord. He held a position of trust and confidence with Paul. And he was a valuable, faithful team member partner, a faithful servant of God. And if you stop and think about it, what an amazing way to be described, right? Can you imagine that, being described like that? So that being said, question, how would you be described? As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, one who says they're born again, how would you be described? Would you be described as a casual, half-hearted, uncommitted, lazy believer? Or as a faithful, sold-out servant of God? Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. The bottom line is this. When you stand before Jesus, it all boils down to faithfulness. Say faithfulness, okay? Were you faithful in doing what God had called you to do? I mean, friends, think about it. Don't you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? Huh? I do. I know I do. And hopefully you do as well. So, Artemis and Tychicus are to come and release and replace Titus, who Titus will then go and join Paul in Nicopolis. Look at verse 12c. 12c. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Nicopolis means city of victory, and it's northwest of Corinth in Achaia on the western coast of the peninsula there, and it's about 400 miles straight line distance from Crete. Let's go on to verse 13. Verse 13a. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer. Well, just like Artemis, this is the only reference to Zenos in the Bible. He was a Gentile, and Paul identified him as a lawyer. I mean, if a lawyer can get saved, anyone can get saved, right? Right? But the word, the word "lawyer" could also mean that he was a Jewish expert in the Mosaic Law. In any case, he he had set aside his career long enough to accompany Apollos on this trip, and we'll see that right now. But now, now we don't know. We don't know uh, if he originally traveled with Titus to Crete, or if he became a trusted disciple through the ministry of Titus there. Whatever the case. Paul knew Zenos would be beneficial to him in Nicopolis. Look at verse 13b, verse 13b. And Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. So we learned who he, Apollos, was in our series series, the fifth gospel from the book of Acts. Remember that? In fact, in Acts chapter 18, Acts 18, verses 24 through 25, it says, a Jew named... Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. So he knew the word. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Though he only, listen now, only knew, though he knew only, excuse me, the baptism of John. So what happens, and we know the story, right? He came to Ephesus where Paul's teammates, Priscilla and Aquila, took him aside and taught him the way of God more accurately because he only knew knew of the baptism of John. And the fact that he listened to Priscilla and Aquila shows that he had a humble, teachable heart. Now, friends, later he had a powerful ministry in Corinth and he became an evangelist and leader in the church. He, Apollos, was a very popular teacher of God's Word. He was extremely well-versed. People loved the way that he taught the Word of God. Now, it's possible that this letter from Paul was carried to Titus by Zenos and Apollos, and after spending some time there in Crete, it was time to go. Their job is, is done. And Paul wanted them, uh, Zenus and Apollos, to come to Nicopolis. And you see, Zenus and Apollos... We're essentially traveling missionaries. Let's read verse 13 again. Let's read the whole verse, verse 13 again. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. So the main point of the verse is that Titus is to help these two brothers on their way so that they have no needs on their journey. That they have no needs, say no needs, on their journey. Now we can take some wisdom from this passage that God that God's workers need to be supported well so they don't have any needs. And I want to tell you friends it's far too frequent that God's people are disobedient in the matter of generous giving to assist and support those in full-time ministry. Now I want to take the time to thank those of you have who have been giving faithfully to this church to this ministry. In fact, there's some of you that don't even belong to this church, but you're giving to this church. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for your faithful giving. I also realize and recognize that many of you cannot give at this time because of the impact that COVID has had in your finances and in your job situation. I want to tell you, if you can't give, I get it, okay? Uh, and But I pray that, and I pray for you that when you get back on your feet, that you can start to give when that time comes, okay? So I just want to tell you, I love you, and I'm praying for you. And uh, we're going to move forward, right? We're going to move forward. God's going to bless this ministry. Now, there's a lesson here, and this is a lesson. And get this. It's extremely important. And here's a lesson. Teamwork in ministry. Write that down. Teamwork in ministry. Friends, the ministry is not made for the Lone Ranger. I'm going to say it again. The ministry is not made for the Lone Ranger. We are called to partner with each other. Listen, we're in this together. Can you all say that? We're in this together. And Paul, Titus, Artemis, Tychicus, Zenos, and Apollos were in the work of ministry together. Got it? Together. Listen, there is no way. There is no way Paul could have accomplished all that needed to be done without these guys. He needed these guys. And they labored together. In fact, in fact, friends, we don't get any sense whatsoever that these men competed against each other trying to get the spotlight on their abilities. They didn't compete with each other. They complemented each other. These guys stood together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why they, they were not in competition with each other. They understood that the church didn't belong to them, that they didn't, listen, and that it didn't, the church didn't revolve around their personalities or abilities. I mean, if that were the case, then the church would, be, would die with the passing on of these guys, right? I want you to get this, friends. The church is built upon Jesus Christ alone, Him alone. It's all about Him. It's not built upon the pastors and elders and deacons of this church or leaders of this church. It's built upon Him him alone. Now listen, in our nation, it's all based on independence, right? Independence, right? You you know, you do your thing, I do my thing. You do your thing, I do my thing. And sometimes as Christians, we have that same mindset, that same mentality and attitude, and we say, "I I belong to Jesus, but I'll just do my thing. Yeah, yeah, I'll just do my thing, friends. Listen, listen, listen. The ministry and the Word of God is never about your thing. It's never about my thing, friends. It's all about us coming together, doing His thing. It's all about Him. It's His thing. We're all in the body together. Different gifts and talents and abilities serving together, touching lives for Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? You see, our God... Get this now. Our God is preparing a bride for his son, not a monument to man. So all of us must realize that we are partners in the gospel. Listen, friends, listen. The church is much bigger than all of us together, bigger than all of us put together. See, we labor together as God, as God has appointed us, joining with others to build up the body of Christ. We're in this together. It's not my thing. It's not your thing. It's us coming together, doing his thing. Amen? Paul mentions the faithful. And now Paul mentions the second subpoint is this the fruitful. Not just the faithful, but now he mentions the fruitful. That's the second subpoint is write it down the fruitful. Look at verse 14a with me. Verse 14a. He writes, Our people. So he's referring to the believers in Crete, and and Paul identified with them as part of the church, as the body of Christ. So he says, Our people must learn, say learned, to devote themselves to doing, say doing, or say maintaining what is good. I want you to follow me here. The verb learn and the verb maintain are in the present tense. There's a present imperative. In other words, that's a command. Got it? Now the word maintain has been translated take the lead in, take the lead in. So that the idea is to jump out to jump out front and get the job done and not to lag behind in good works. The idea here is that we ought to always be learning to always be doing good deeds, good works. You see, friends, as Christians, we should always be thinking about always helping other people in terms of their needs. Look at verse 14b. If you're still with me, say amen. In order that they may provide for necessities and not live unproductive lives. The King James says that they be not unfruitful. You know, Paul, Paul he left a final admonition for Titus to teach them to maintain good works in order, get this now, in order to be fruitful in faith and fruitful in ministry. Now, Paul knew, and we know this, right? Paul knew works didn't save. We know that, right? Paul knew that. But those walking with God would be given to good works. Andrew Murray captured the importance of good deeds when he said this. And I love it. He said, the deeper our conviction that we have been saved, not of works, but of grace, the stronger the proof that we have indeed been saved for good works. So in order for the ministries in Crete to be successful, the church would have to show forth good works, and this involves financial support as well. You see, this was Paul's one last plea, one last plea to Titus to encourage the people to be doing good works. And friends, friends, excuse me, friends, it's as if he, Paul, can't conclude the book without one more plea, one more appeal for believers to do good works. Back in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, be an example by doing what is good. In chapter 2, verse 14, Chapter 2, verse 14, he says, be eager to do what is good. Here in this chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 1, he says, be ready for every good deed. In chapter 8 of this chapter, he says, be careful to engage in good works. Right now in chapter in this chapter, chapter 3, verse 14, we just read it to you, learn to devote yourselves to doing what is good. Now, I wonder why he had to tell them This so many times in such a short book. Well, maybe, maybe. It's because by nature, we don't automatically do good things since we are, let's be honest, since we are lazy or consumed by our own issues. Friends, we need constant reminders. Constant reminders because when we do good works, when we do good deeds, we stand out in a godless, selfish way. Culture. Now, why? Why do good works? Why? Four reasons. Write this down. Four reasons. So that God gets the glory. Come on, say that. So that God gets the glory. Matthew 5 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. There it is. Your good deeds. Now, here we go. And glorify, there it is, your Father. In heaven. Friends, good works are those activities which are motivated for the glory of God. And when we do good things in this godless, fallen, sinful culture, God gets the glory. God gets the glory. So, the first reason is so that God gets the glory. The second reason is it, may, it maintains our testimony. It maintains our testimony. Listen, we do good works to show others that we're different. That we're different, friends, okay? We stand out when we do good works. So it maintains our testimony that we show them that we're saved, That we have a heart to do good works. The third reason is this people are helped. People are helped. People are helped. I want you to write this down. Galatians chapter 6, Galatians 6, verse 10 says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good, say, do good unto all men, all people especially unto them who are of the household of faith. The good works, listen now, the good works are to provide for urgent needs. In fact, in the King James, the text says this, necessary necessities or necessary uses. People, listen now, people do have needs and sometimes uh, through uh, no fault of their own, those needs have to be supplied by others. Now, these are not wants. These are not oversupplies. These are not greeds. These are needs. These are legitimate needs we're talking about. And I want to tell you this. Let's not forget we're talking about needs. We're talking about the greatest need. We're talking about good works, right? Let's not forget that people's greatest need is salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the greatest good work. That's the urgent need, friends, rescuing the perishing. Now listen, and I want you to hear my heart, friends. I'm all, I am all, I'm down. I'm down for doing humanitarian work or being involved in social justice issues. But, but, as Christians, we better put the gospel front and center of that or all we're doing is what the world is doing. We need to put Jesus Christ, the gospel, in the mix. Can I get an amen? The fourth reason why I do good works is so we will not be unfruitful. So we will not be unfruitful. The positive is this to what? To be fruitful. Let's look at the text. Let's look at the text. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for necessities and not live unproductive, the King James says, unfruitful lives. You see, this grace is doing good deeds. Let me say it again. This grace of doing good deeds is tied directly to Christian fruitfulness. Say, say fruitfulness. And if you want to be fruitful, do good works. Do good works. Now, if not, why not? Why not? I mean, don't you want to be a fruitful believer? I do, don't you? In fact, friends, okay, you'll be rewarded for that. God will reward you for that. So that's number one. Point number one is the identification. And Paul mentions the faithful and the fruitful. Now we're to point number two is the salutation. Write that down, the Salutation. A salutation is a greeting or acknowledgement of another's arrival or departure. I'm going to say it again. A salutation is a greeting or acknowledgement of another's arrival or departure. Now let's look at verse 15. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 15a, excuse me. Verse 15a, the first part of that. Paul writes, Everyone with me, say with me, sends your greeting. So he was no solo leader. And I love that about Paul. Paul worked with others. They lived in a community. And so he writes, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those. Say that, greet those, which implying that it was more than just Titus he was writing to. Then he says this, who love us in the faith. I'm going to read the whole, the, the, the first portion of verse 15. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith who love us in the faith. So he he distinguishes the false teachers back in chapter 1 verse 16 with those who are genuine in the faith. He didn't want to give his greetings to the false teachers so that he might not participate with them or give them the idea or impression that he approved of their hypocrisy. The same idea is given in 2 John. 2 John verses 9 and 10. There's only one chapter in 2 John. verse So 2 John verses 9 and 10, where John warns not to even give a greeting to the false teachers among them. And he says this, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Wow. Huh. Now, this greeting was more than just simply saying, hi, what's up, how are you? It expressed warm well wishes and love for these brothers and sisters in Christ, appreciation for their faith in Christ, and partnership with them in ministry and fellowship with them in the gospel. It declared, you're valuable to us, you're special to us, and and, and appreciated by us, loved and prayed for. And I want to tell you, friends, no doubt, no doubt this brought much encouragement to Titus and to the churches, knowing that they were being prayed for and supported by Paul and those who ministered alongside of Paul. And you know what? You stop and think about it. We really can see Paul's passion, Paul's passion for people in this verse. He craved to be connected with fellow Christians. And he wanted Titus and those in Crete to know that everyone with him was with them. That everyone with him was with them. Now, now, very Paul-like. Paul ends with a prayer that God's grace will be with all believers there. Look at verse 15b. As we end the verse and end the chapter, or end the book, the letter. Verse 15b. Grace be with you. Grace be with you all. Grace was a common greeting and a common salutation. And he began in grace. Paul began in grace back in chapter 1, verse 4. Back in chapter 1, verse 4, where he he writes to Titus, my son, in our common faith, he says this, grace, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. And so he ends in grace and says, grace be with you. So he signs off where he signed on. And you see, that's the message, friends. Got to get this. That's the message expressed throughout this letter. And that is, friends, that our salvation from start to finish is all about grace. It's all about grace. Listen, now if you're saved, say amen. If our lives are not rooted in the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, then we cannot produce the fruit of good deeds. You see, the roots dictate the fruit. I'm going to say it again. The roots dictate the fruit. And friends, the bonds of fellowship exist because the roots of our lives dig deeply into the rich soil of God's grace, bearing fruit for the glory of God. Can I get an amen? And you you know, it's as if Paul can't get over the fact that God saved him from his sins. He never, Paul never tires of teaching about grace. Because why? Why? Because he wants everyone to be impacted by God's unmerited favor, by God's amazing grace. Now, there's a lesson. And here is the lesson. And I want you to get it, okay? We should never get over the fact that God saved us from our sins we should never, never get over the fact that God saved us from our sins. It should always be fresh and always, always be fresh and new in our hearts and our minds that He saved us. And I often think about myself and the fact that God would save a depraved sinner like me, worthless, unrighteous, sinful man, that He would save someone like me. And I constantly remind myself every day, hey, thank you, Lord, for saving someone who is so unworthy of your grace. Thank you for saving me. In fact, friends, the one thing that makes me question God, the one thing that makes me question God is his choice of me. That he would choose me, that he would save me, and that he would use me. I thank God that He saved me. I thank God for His amazing grace. Let's listen to the final words from some of Paul's letters. And I want you to follow me here. I might go a little fast here. Romans 16, 20. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And 1 Corinthians 16, verse 23. 1 Corinthians 16, 23. Paul says, writes, The grace of... Say that, the grace. The grace, our Lord Jesus, be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Paul writes, may the grace, there is grace, of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians chapter 6, verse 18. Galatians 6, verse 18. Paul writes, the grace, there's that word, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Ephesians 6.24, Ephesians 6.24. Grace, a grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Philippians 4.23, Philippians 4.23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Colossians 4.18, Colossians 4.18. Grace be with you all. 1 Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 5:28 1 Thessalonians 5:28 The grace there it is again that word grace the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 18 2 Thessalonians 3:18 The grace the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all 1 Timothy 1 Timothy 5:21 Not done yet. 1 Timothy 5.21 and 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.22. 2 Timothy 4.22, Paul writes, grace, grace be with you. Philemon, Philemon verse 25, Philemon verse 25, Paul writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And then here in our text, here in the text, he writes, grace be with you all, you all. Paul wrote to Titus, one person, right? But his conclusion shows that this letter was meant for all believers there in Crete and for those around the world today. And friends, this is the grace that distinguishes the people of God. We are saved by grace. We are sustained by grace. We are kept by grace. And we enter into our inheritance by grace. Would you love this? By grace. So, as we wrap this up, four takeaways. Four takeaways from today's message. The first takeaway is this, help others in ministry. Write that down. Help others in ministry. Listen, we need to help each other each other as we give as we use our gifts as we use our talents and abilities as we serve together here at cry out for the glory of God to advance his work and his kingdom help others in ministry the second takeaway is this be faithful believers be faithful believers be faithful to his word be faithful to his work Be faithful in our walk, that we would, listen, live like true believers. That we would be faithful servants, sold-out servants of His kingdom. The third takeaway is this. Be fruitful, fruitful believers. Be fruitful believers. When we do good deeds, we meet needs. When we do good deeds, we meet needs. In other words, what we're doing is we're touching lives for Jesus Christ. And the fourth takeaway is this. Let's share with others about the grace of God. Let's share with others about the grace of God. We need to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for how you inspired Paul through your Holy Spirit to write this short but powerful, amazing letter, teaching us, Lord, about church organization and Christian obligation. And Father, I pray that we here at Cry Out will regain our excitement and zeal for the work of ministry that we will do all that we can together for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray and I thank you. Amen, amen, and amen. Listen, perhaps there's some of you out there who never invited Jesus Christ to come into your life and your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior. And if that's you, if you want to do that, if you want to follow him, and trust him into your life today. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I need you to come into my life to save me, cleanse me, and to change me. I believe, I confess, excuse me, I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. From this day forth, I will serve you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you said that prayer, we would love to hear from you. Uh, You can email us at contact at cryout.org. Again, that's contact at cryout.org. So friends, see you next week as we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God bless. I love you. Grace and peace.